Sometimes you just got to begin to chase a dream that is bigger than you. Sometimes when it seems like you're so far behind, you'll never catch up. You got to get up on your feet. You can't wait for other people to be what you've been called to be. Hello everyone, welcome to the Ugly Daughter Podcast. This is Julia Legian. I'm so happy and excited to have such a beautiful and super talented lady as our special guest for the show today. Her name's Sonette Stevens. Sonette Stevens, speaker coach to 109 TED and TEDx speakers, communications practitioner, associate professor of business presentation skills at YNU. I'm grateful that Sonette took her time out from her busy schedule and to be on my show today. Hello and welcome, Sonesse. Well, thank you so much for having me, Julia. It's such an honor to be here with you. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you on my show. I was moved watching your talk about your struggle growing up because of your mother's mental illness. Is that okay for you to share your story with our listener today? Sure. Uh, so, Julia, I think you're referring to my most recent TEDx talk at TEDx Waseda U. Yes. It's, uh, it's the talk, How to Listen So People Can Speak. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, <laughs> a funny story about this, this talk is, uh, for if, if you're just listening now for the first time, um, I am a TED speaker coach and I've trained over 109 TED and TEDx speakers. But what people often don't know is that I am an associate professor of communications at a major Japanese university. And doing so, I do a lot of research on, on how people communicate. And in that was also about listening skills. But the more that I was researching about listening and observing after living half of my life in Japan, how people communicate and how people listen so much more deeply here in Japan versus where I was raised in the U.S., it started bringing up stories from my childhood. And, um, and my, my mother had uh, several different, <laughs> different symptoms, which all fall into the line of mental illness. Mm. And I had no intention on giving a TEDx talk on mental illness whatsoever. <laughs> Seriously, this was all about how to listen and communicate. But that was a great speech, though. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And it was really quite scary, Julia, getting up there and, you know, standing up on a stage Mm. talking about how to listen so people people can speak and that whole entire trauma that comes up of not being heard. And I thought, oh, my God, what if my mom hears this talk? Now, my mom, she's like 85 years old and she doesn't Mm. have access to the Internet and, you know. I thought she would never see this, but out of integrity, I thought, oh, I, I should tell my mom that yes. I'm speaking about her mental illness <laughs> on a global stage of TEDx, <laughs> and, uh, and the whole entire yeah. world is going to see it. And I thought, oh, my mom is going to have a reaction. She's going to be like, oh, my goodness, Sinesh, you told the whole entire world I was crazy. But actually, funny enough, Julia, it, it actually brought up it, it brought yeah. up a really profound moment to to open up communication and really have a good dialogue about what had happened and mm. you know with memories we have something called flashbulb memories have you heard about flashbulb memories no i only heard of flashback flashbulb memories are like you know when you take a photo and the flash yeah. gives a flickering light mm-hmm. 
and you just remember that one moment, but the moments before and moments after are kind of fuzzy and hazy, and everybody kind of has their own perspective on what those are. And I thought, is this just me? Am I, am I remembering all of this correctly? And I remember, you know, growing up in a house that wasn't a typical house with a foundation. My house memory is living in our car because every few months we would pack up everything that we were going to keep and pile them into our car. And at one point I remember having a Volkswagen Dasher and it was this little hatchback car and piling everything up in the middle of the night and with the lights turned off backing out of the driveway so no one would know that we were skipping out. And that was not just a one-off occurrence. We would live in cars for months at a time, moving from truck stop to truck stop, state to state. And this is before the uh, there were laws against vagrancy. And I just, you know, I just thought we were on this big ninja adventure. <laughs> I can't, I can't believe you laugh about this. <laughs> well, you know, as a child, you really don't know uh, what the difference is between what's normal and what's not normal. We just mm. looked at it as a big adventure. You know, here we were getting in the car. Uh, there wasn't any fear for my brother, Chris and I. I was, you know. But what about the friends that you left behind, though? You know, the people that you know in the, in the school and all that. Well, actually, we didn't really go to school. Um, ah, okay. So, you know how there's an unschooling movement well, now? what a cool life you had then. <laughs> we were wild and we were free. Yeah. <laughs> You know, we would move, uh, we would get, we like get in our car, yeah. travel around for several months, living in truck stops. Or I remember one summer we lived by the beach in Ocean City, New Jersey, and we just had the times of our lives <laughs> being wild and free and playing in the ocean. And the ice cream man would see my brother and I and think, oh, these poor kids. And every day he would give us ice cream, and we didn't think we were poor at all. We were living it up yeah. and living large with ice cream cones in our hands daily and dumping water jugs over our heads to take a shower before climbing on top of everything we owned to sleep in the wow. car, the three of us. And, you know, we just thought it was absolute fun. So we didn't know, you know, when we would eventually, you know, all the other kids would go home. That's <laughs> after right. After vacation, we were there for fun we would end up moving yeah. into another house and allegedly signing up for another year of school, which nobody mm. made us go to. There was no, there was no, um, my mom, she slept all day and was awake all night. So she never wow. told us to go to school. So we didn't go to school. And so we didn't have that, yeah. um, that yeah. social connection with like friends leaving friends behind or anything because we were just mm. wild and free. But that doesn't mean we missed out on education. Yeah. My brother and I were avid readers. Like we would go to the, uh, the Goodwill or the Salvation Army and run to the back room where all the books were. And I remember just sitting back in there and just reading and reading for hours. And there was like math books too. And I would beg my mom, Mom, please, please buy me this math book. I mean, what, you know, what little girl is like begging yeah. their mom for a math book? But, I, you know, I loved math. I loved reading. Mm. I loved all of this stuff. So we were getting a kind of different kind of education, not traditional, <laughs> just sort of uh, that education of our own curiosity and, and adventures in science of jumping off of roofs and running from, um, running from 
you know, we, we lived in a predominantly black neighborhood at one point when we lived in Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> Actually, most of the time we li- when we did find a place to live, it was, we were the only two white kids in the neighborhood. And I remember my brother getting, I mean, we get chased down the street by gangs. And oh my, my, God. my brother would be like, run, jump in, the, jump in the dumpster. And I'd hide in these dumpsters. <laughs> and, uh, and he would come home pantsless and shoeless at least. Oh, no. His pants hanging over the ele- the um, the electric wires and yeah. things like that. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was just, it was, these are actually some of the best memories of both of our lives. And we laughed so yeah. hard. So even though our mother wasn't present, and she loved us so much, we know that, but she just didn't have the capacity yeah. at the time to to really, you know, be there and be present for us in that way that hopefully parents can be. Mm. But we know she loved us yeah. so much, but she just didn't have it all together. And, you know, looking back on that, I think – when we, we have parents with mental illness, we have a choice to stay in that childlike moment of the freedom and yeah. that playfulness because we do live there. Or you can just say, oh, I'm a victim for the rest of my life. And not that I haven't done some therapy. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> well, you're like, I thought that you were lucky that you have this childlike attitude throughout that whole um period of your life or was it that you you just developing it now because obviously you know I know that you and your brothers were young then but surely you can tell that there's something is not right that you know you're living in the car and you're moving from place to place yeah we really did not get it until (laughs) I didn't get I did not get it until we were like maybe maybe somewhere around somewhere around like 11 or 12 years old, there was a period of time where the courts took custody of me away from my, wow. my mother and gave me to uh, my father's mother, oh, wow. who was this multimillionaire. So I went from living in a car, living in a car to a Frank Lloyd Wright estate. Um, oh, hello, that's a bit too extreme. <laughs> I know, like 24 karat gold faucets and just bizarre. Yeah. Like this woman, she was like, of Royston Motors, one of the most wealthy women back in the day. And, um, you know, the courts gave custody to her because they thought my mother was unfit. (laughs) Go figure. (laughs) Um, But I didn't know that at the time. All I knew is that that was my mother, and that was the woman I'd always known. And my memories of my father were not positive. Like, the last memory I had of him was when I was four. I remember him beating her with an iron skillet and breaking her ribs throwing my brother across the room. I just remember wow. that. So when the courts put me in her home, I thought, wow, um, it was a big, a big difference between the two. I went from somebody who I knew loved me, who, didn't, who couldn't take care of me, to someone who yeah. could take care of me, but didn't love me. Yeah. Well, for her, you know, she, she had um, a social status to prove. And I became this doll for her to take to country clubs. But I, of course, had been raised like a wild child or not raised at all. <laughs> and so it didn't fit in with yeah. all of what she had expected. And, you know, the dress up that was required and the country clubs and the, the social status. And that, um, that's just extreme, isn't it? I mean, like going from being free, being wild into you like kind of like somebody have to tell you telling you what to do and yeah. how to dress and how well, to talk and that's just like it's just like you just like, well, like it was, a bird being locked in the cage 
that's it, like a bird locked in a cage. Exactly, Julia. And this is not my mother's grandmother, uh, but my father's mother. So she didn't have emotional connection with uh, you. Yeah, yeah, emotional connection or emotional intelligence. I was just a uh, a dress-up doll, a prop. Yeah. And I remember going back and forth and, you know, the courts wouldn't listen. They were like, I want to live with my mom. You know, I wouldn't mind living with with Toby on weekends, but, you know, I miss my brother, Chris. I, I really want to see them again. Yeah. And um, what they didn't realize what was going on is that, you know, it's part of this high society now. And, you know, it, it was it was a daily routine. You wake up, you do your thing, and every night you watch, um, you have dinner, um, TV dinners on the TV table with a glass of uh a glass of wine. And I had glasses of wine from the ages of six to nine every night with dinner. What? And then That's after dinner, crazy. we would have a glass of sherry and watch 60 Minutes, which for me, oh, gosh. I didn't realize Boring. 60 Minutes was, <laughs> I thought 60 seconds. I was like, gosh, this is ever going to end. And I became her drinking partner in this case. Oh, no. So, wow. But the, the courts didn't ever ask questions about how was she raising me. They would always ask how was my mother raising mm. me at that point. Nobody ever saw all the other kinds of um, like the alcoholism or that sort of abuse in that sort of sense. Um, so when I when I when the courts finally gave custody back to my mother, um, she said to me, and was the last thing I remember her saying is, You finally got your you finally got what you wanted. You're going back to live with your mother. I disown you. And I thought disown I'm nine years old I'm like what does disown mean yeah I actually had to go look it up in a dictionary <laughs> you have to look up a dictionary disown. <laughs> I mean she didn't want anything to ever do with me again and so then yeah. you know I just remembered it's not about it's not about how much money or how much social or how much perceived mental capacity one has mm. but it's about how much love is available and how to choose and how to pick and choose what's um, what's going to move you forward um, in a state of love. And while neither of them had the best capacity, I knew that my mother she would she would lay down her life for me. And I was so happy to be reunited with her. So I didn't. And then again, we were back in cars <laughs> and back in apartment buildings. And you know, by the time I was um, thirteen, my uncle. Uh, ensured that we moved down to Florida to go live with my mother's mother um, and who she really saved my life and saved my soul. In which way? Can you please share with us? She was the first person who had, you know, after just being wild and free for so long versus, or being a dress-up doll, mm -hmm. I was in the state of where somebody said, you go to, you, you know, it's time to wake up. Mm -hmm. You go to school. I'm like, somebody made me go to school every day? I'm like, what is this? And um, it was the first time that I saw other kids have parents that worked and parents who cooked three meals a day. And they all grew up together. I'd never seen that before. Even in the few years that I was with, um, with Toby, there was so much discord happening at that moment. I didn't even realize it. And she also said, you know, these are the people around you. You come and you join the church community. And... Uh, I went to church almost every time the doors were open. She was the church yeah. pianist and church choir director. And she's like, 10 o'clock, you go to bed. And I went to bed. I went to bed at 10. I, went, I woke up in the morning. I went to school. I went to church. I went to bed. I went to I woke up. I went to school. I went to church. I went to bed. I mean, that was my routine pretty much almost every day of the week. Um, mm. And so 
she she literally saved our lives. So your mom and your brother and and you all get to live with your grandmother. Your yeah, yeah. Oh wow! So she saved our our lives and she saved my soul. And there was this understanding of uh, there are some expert expectations, but also uh, discovering what my own expectations of myself were not to have any of those expectations that were so pronounced on me. So mm. it was it was such a huge growth period. But yeah, it's it's those experiences. So it, whether you grow up with a parent with a mental illness who literally cannot take care of you um, and may not have the physical or mental or financial or emotional capacity, children have one thing that they gravitate towards, which is love. And I knew that with my father's mother, there wasn't love. Mm. And that's why kids join gangs. That's why kids, you know, the teens turn to prostitution. It's because they're gravitating towards where can I get the love that I need? And every, every moment in my life, there's always been one person, whether it was my grandma in Florida or neighbors across the street who made sure that I came over for dinner every night because they knew we weren't getting food at home. Yeah. Um, You're quite lucky in that way. So lucky and having that. And and that's why even now I, I choose to be that person to say, come over, come be part of our, our home, our family. You need a place, you need somewhere to stay. You're out of work. You come stay with us. And you know that because having that one person you can, you can gravitate towards with love, yeah. who has love and, and the, that ability will will ensure that you you find the right way up. Yeah, and it doesn't mean you're not going to have things later on to work on and your psyche and 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 things that need to be healed. And we all spend our lifetimes doing that, no matter what environment we grow up in. There's always some yeah. sort of something underlying. But we grab But love is very important, though, because I—I I mean, I, I can so relate, you know, to what you just said. Because, like, mm. I when when I grew up, well, the moment I was born, my parents they didn't want me, so they gave me away to my grandmother. The first six years that I lived with my grandmother was the best six years of my life, because she gave me like unconditional love. She gave me so much love that I—I I kind of like mm. have it for life. And so when I returned and lived with my parents with all the abuse and everything, it didn't really uh, break my spirit because mm-hmm. of the thing that my grandmother, the foundation that my grandmother mm-hmm. helped me build, you know, up to that point. So I really, really relate to what you said that, you know, love, seriously, love conquers everything. You just need that one person to believe in you and love you unconditionally. Mm-hmm. And that's all you need. Really, you don't need a lot. You just need one person. One person. I was listening to um, I was listening to a a TED speaker this afternoon about um, how he became an artist, and he said it was one word, two words, uh, when a visiting artist came to his school, and he kind of grew up similar to me, like except his mom was a uh, heroin addict or something, <laughs> um, and. Uh, uh, when he was eight, his grandmother took him in. I thought, oh, that sounds very familiar. It sounds like my story. Yeah. Um, and he loved drawing comics. And this this famous artist came to visit the school, or professional artist came. And after his lecture, 
they all went back to the classroom. They started drawing his comics. That's what their assignment was. And then he walked in the room and he went up and down the aisles looking at all the children's little comics. And he walked by, stopped at his desk, tapped it twice and said, nice cat. Two words of encouragement led him into a career of the arts. And, you know, I think that's, that's all we need. And yeah. as adults, if we can give that to one other person that moment could change their lives with, wow, you're special, or you have a great voice, or nice cat. It's something that simple. Just a word of encouragement, that's all we need. I don't even know where to start with all these children and people like us that came from a, I wouldn't say underprivileged, but, you know, a kind of like a tough childhood. And you can see so many kids on the street or homeless kids or all these young kids that become prostitutes and drug dealers or, you know, addicts. And like what you said, all they need is someone to believe in them, mm-hmm. give them a chance and give them some kind of encouragement, you know, for them to turn their life around. And it's, it's, it's so easy to do, but also there are not, a lot of people are not willing to do it. And that's the sad part. And that's the part that really breaks my heart. Mm. Yeah. But... So how did you end up in Japan? <laughs> I'm curious. Well, it's very similar. You know, Julia, you said you're a refugee. And I, I you know, and I, I know that it was a quite uh, a, lot of, a lot of things that, that you needed to take refuge from. Mm. And I feel like almost everybody who lives abroad yeah. or travels a lot, we're all taking refuge from something. Mm. And moving and being part of a different culture or even short-term or long-term uh, it, it's the process of seeking and healing. Yeah. Would you agree? I definitely agree. But like from your background all the way to Japan, it's like two different worlds. <laughs> you don't <laughs> look very... Japanese or Asian. You <laughs> <laughs> do not look Australian. Either. Um, <laughs> you don't look like a kangaroo. So. <laughs> you know, uh, my whole family was full of creatives. So my mom, she was a jazz singer. Mm-hmm. And... My brothers, uh, there were six of us, seven actually in total, but the first passed away. Oh, wow. And, you know, all of them were creative artists or musicians. And I saw the crazy run through, and I thought there was, the last thing I'm ever going to do is become a, a creative. <laughs> so I knew I would go straight into yeah. business. I thought, one day I'm going to run Disney. I'll be the yeah. CEO. So after gr- finishing uh, university yeah. in Florida, I was on my way to Harvard yeah. for my MBA, and they're like, oh, yeah, you'll be a shoo-in for the program if you can speak Chinese, Japanese, mm-hmm. or Russian. I said, I'll be back in a year. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, ever since I was yeah. a little girl, I remember watching Godzilla yeah. movies with um, the little boy. There was a little boy who lived around the corner from one of the farms that we lived at uh, briefly. And we used to watch Godzilla movies <laughs> and ninja movies. And I would run around the place playing ninja yeah. all the time with my brother. And you know, ninja jumping off the roof, go check out my TEDx talk. It's yeah, I saw that talk. <laughs> so I that was knew. a really awesome talk too. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I watched most of your talks. <laughs> did you? Oh, I did. You. Oh my gosh. Oh, I hope they were, I hope they, <laughs> I hope they were enlightening as well as entertaining. Oh uh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Otherwise, I wouldn't waste my time watching them. Like, I mean, I do have other things to do, you know. <laughs> you have a very meaningful work that you do. 
what did what did you uh, what did you what, why would you recommend people watch my talk? Oh, I loved your talk because I think because you know you're so skillful of you know telling the story and just get you hooked in you know the story. I'm more like getting lost in the story, you know. And then so I click on one one talk and then I click to the next and I I just wonder what she gonna talk next, you know, what story she gonna tell, how she gonna tell it next. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the reason why you know I'm just get hooked onto that. I'm such a sucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think when you grow up without a TV and you live in a car most of the time, you end up <laughs> being very creative, <laughs> which is why I really thought moving to Japan, there would be all these ninja all over the place. Because in my head as a child, I had all these stories and that turned out not to be true, but it ended up going on a, on a really big healing journey in the sense of, wow, really hitting home with what my Achilles heel was, which was communication and expression. And it just, it, it's been my home for the past 20 years. It's half my life. Yeah, it's amazing. So I you think, don't even look that old. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you are lovely. Maybe you That's know, true. Uh, I'm telling the truth. <laughs> uh, it's because Asians always look younger. And since I live in Asia, maybe I got some of that too. <laughs> yeah, probably the air and the rice that you've been eating, I guess. <laughs> probably. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so much you know it's it's really home in a very odd way yeah it's but then again I think I could be at home anywhere like I said if you if you move around a lot at the same time I love having I love having a base I love having a foundation here mm. and yeah you know we were talking earlier about kids when they grow up how do they have an attitude of positivity or or whether to maintain a victimhood. And I think there's, oh heck, there are definitely days where I think, man, why? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think from a young age, yeah. children become resilient, especially children like you and I who come from very challenging and difficult backgrounds because we, mm -hmm. we greet the world with our own voice. What, and our own language, and we meet the world on our own terms. Yeah. And uh, there was a there was a really interesting researcher, and um, I, I'm trying to recall who it is. I think I remember him saying something to the effect of, "Resilient children are autonomous." And independent. I definitely agree with that statement. We have a different we have a different way of interacting and relating to the world, and uh, yeah. and we have deliberate decisions to make. Yeah. And I know at times in my life I've faced very similar crossroads that my mom went down without even knowing it. You know, we they say we we um, we are imprinted from everything that we experience from the time. We were born to about six years old, and then maybe even beyond if you're looking at cognitive behavior. But um, I, I played out some of the same exact roles that my mom played, and I didn't even know it. There were dark family secrets I didn't even know mm. existed. And each time I chose the opposite route. Wow. And I thought, you know, even the ones that I did know, I said, wow, you know, my first first boyfriend that hit me, my only boyfriend that ever hit me, uh, picked me up once, threw me across the room. And I thought, oh, my God, I remember yeah. seeing this happening to my brother and my mother who who guarded me very carefully. And I was like, 
I choose something else. Get out. I'll never see you again. And, you know, we we have a choice in that moment because what we've seen, what we experience, and we have to make a deliberate choice in that moment. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you. I mean, I'm I'm just, I'm thinking, my way of thinking is exactly like yours because I refuse to allow, you know, to allow myself to be a victim or I, I refuse to allow anyone to mistreat me because I saw and I witnessed what's going on with my parents and a lot of us, you know, just... It's just like they say, monkey see, monkey do. Mm-hmm. And I really hate that statement mm. because it's like, we're not monkeys, mm. we're human. <laughs> <laughs> we have the right to protest what we were programmed. Um, <laughs> you know, we have this moment in our lives. You know, they have these protest marches going on right now in the United States with uh, even around the world with all the political changes and shifts that are happening. Yeah. And I'm not going to make this political statement on here. (laughs) You have all these protesters out with their signs and they're holding their signs up high and they say, what do we want? Change. When do we want it? Now. Change comes within. Change comes within. And we also have a choice. Like I do believe, you know, we have all these different, uh, these different voices, not just in our heads, but the ones that we say aloud. And we have an option at a point to protest that. What do we, it's just about basically having awareness. You have awareness of what those voices are saying. And then the second step is you, you protest it. What do we mm-hmm. want? And then you make a declaration. What do we want? I'm like, not that. Specifically is what you want. Yeah. Um, yeah. In this case, you know, um, uh, freedom or independence or uh, a loving relationship or self-care. And then, you know, what do we want? Change. When do we want it? Now. Instead of when, we change the when to how. How do we want it? And in that moment, your brain is like, what? Huh? Huh? What? what? Huh? No one's ever asked me that before. And the no one's ever asked me that before thing kind of puts the brain in another state of, yeah. got any suggestions? <laughs> well, I, I guess, you know, like, for me, I mean, I'm just speaking on my behalf, but every time I ask a question, I challenge my mind and I don't, I never allow, I never allow myself to use my, my adversity as an excuse not to do something or not to become someone that actually I use it as a motivation and also an inspiration for me to do something to change, to, to mm. be an example and to show people that it is possible to change. Mm. You don't have to live the way your parents live and you don't have to follow their example in this world in the western world you can walk away there's so many help and so many people out there that willing to hold your hand mm. there's like so many so many options why do you allow yourself to be trapped in this crazy environment that people use you and abuse you just because what you saw in your past mm. i i just think son so next to me i think it's just crazy you know, that's something that I don't understand. Yeah, it's, it's, it's huge. Well, if it was easy to do, everyone would do it. I mean, it's, again, we're having to, uh, to make difficult, what could be perceived as difficult choices in, in changing our, our record <laughs> grooves and, and finding a new tune yeah. to play. And, and, you know, when we do that, we have an opportunity not just to heal ourselves, but also, can I share a little, a little story about what happened um, after my TEDx talk and after uh, going home? A couple months later, I, I went to visit 
visit my mom. Can I share a little, um, little after story of that? And if you watch my TEDx talk, you'll hear this huge shift in, in, in consciousness that uh, my mom made a deliberate decision to do. And it really connected us in a way that I'd always dreamed of, but I never thought was possible. Um, my mom lives in that state that you were talking about. Um, she has a, a variety of psychosis and will not get help for them. And when I went home last August, I went to visit her in, I was, I was teaching at uh, Jonathan Fields Good Life Project camp. And um, my brothers said, hey, do you want to come up and, uh, and come, come visit us at the beach? I said, yeah, I'll pick up mom on the way. Like, no, we don't want mom to come. <laughs> and I'm like, what, you want me to drive through Connecticut up to, up to Boston and not pick up our mother from, wow. as I'm driving up from New York? Um, I don't, I'm like, I'm not, they're like, well, we just don't want anything to do with her. She's just, we can't handle her. Just, we're done. I thought, well, I'm not going to drive through Connecticut on my way to Massachusetts and not pick up our, our mother. That's out of integrity. And I'm like, well, you can stop and see her on the way back. I'm like, nope. Yeah. I just put my foot down. I'm like, I, I'm no, no, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to make any excuses. And when I went to pick up after I taught at the camp, uh, Good Life Project, I went up to up to visit them. The following Tuesday, I drove through Connecticut and I picked up my mom. And they're like, well, good luck getting here because it's really hard to get her moving and, and out the door. And nobody would ever drive that distance with her. And I'm like, oh. I'm like okay, mom, you've got a couple choices. Here's choice A. We're going to leave it at 9.45. Choice B, we're leaving at 9.55, which is better for you. <laughs> like, <laughs> an A, B choices. Like, what, what would you rather do? And <laughs> You know, I'm the only person who apparently who's ever gotten her out the door on time. And we drove like for four, five hours or so up to Massachusetts, Gloucester, Massachusetts. And in the car, we were driving that whole entire time. And, you know, uh, my, my research is on listening and practicing the art of listening. And although I've been doing a lot of talking because it's your podcast, you asked me to. No, it's okay. No worry. I mean, it's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I know I have time and a limit, but when it's become an interesting topic, I'm just keep going. (laughs) (laughs) So my mom, we're in the car, we're driving up to, up to Boston, just uh, driving up to Gloucester and we're, you know, she's talking, 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 talking four hours straight nonstop. And, you know, I'd be like, mm-hmm, okay, uh-huh, tell me more, you know, all sorts of great listening skills. And occasionally my mom would say something about, I, you know, and there was a CD. I'm like, oh, I just released a CD. <laughs> <laughs> like, and she didn't pick up on that. And she yeah. just went on another tangent about somebody else's <laughs> CD. And I'm like, yeah. And so my CD was like the most, and she did not. I said, you know, mom, let's just take a moment here. Let me ask you a question. Yeah, yeah. Like, did you recognize that I, I said that I actually – released a, a, a cd <laughs> <laughs> and she's like oh yeah and no, no, no. i'm like well, well just a moment let me ask you a question what would happen if you uh, if you allowed someone else to to speak yeah. what do you think would happen then you listen <laughs> and she's like well oh are you worried that maybe um do you ever wonder maybe you're talking incessantly over the other person is building up a wall between you it's actually maybe 
possibly, do you think it might be possible there's a fear of intimacy? And, and she stopped and she said, I'm afraid if I stop talking, no one will ever listen to me again. Wow. I'm like, That's oh. powerful. Oh, my God. And I told her how the brothers, you know, they were reluctant to have her come up. Well, you told her? Of course. I'm going to be honest with her. You know, but I said <laughs> okay. in the most loving way. I'm not like, yeah, nobody wants you to come up. <laughs> no, and I was like, well, you know, what if on this trip you did something a little different? What if you let the other person speak first? And just listen, what do you think would happen? She said, well, I don't know. I've never done that. <laughs> Let's just try it this weekend and see what happens. And here we're going into an environment where she's got a lot of emotional charge anyway. So we're moving, we're driving into her ex-husband's, you know, family's beach estate, which um, she was basically kicked off of and excommunicated from that, from ex-husband's family. And there's a whole bunch of emotional charges there. And, and then she's seeing all these people who... She feels nervous about creating that relationship with, and I was so proud of her because the moment we got there, it was the first time she said, hi, how have you been? Tell me about it. And for the first time we spent, my brothers and I and my mom had 24 hours together, and my mom laughed and laughed. And they listened to each other, and she listened. Yes. And my two older brothers, and they're, my mom's 85, and they're 60 and 65, and they held her hands, and we all went out to watch the sunset. And it was the first time I ever saw my brothers hold her hands. And amazing. she wept with joy. And the boys said, this is the best family reunion we've ever had. It was the first time it wasn't all about, I need, I want, me, me, me. But it was about everyone and that harmony and just being present together. And that was the catalyst for a huge amount of healing that happened that week. And I'm so proud of her. I love, no matter how old someone is, 85 they can still have an awakening for change. And your job and my job, all of our jobs are just to be as present as we can be with that person with no judgment on it. Just ask questions. And listen. I'm lucky, you know, like my grandmother gave me that uh, gift a long time ago that we don't judge anyone. Mm. And, and, you know, we just love people unconditionally. It doesn't matter where they come from or what struggle they have in their lives or their background. I just don't judge, you know, I just see them as a human being, just like you and I, and that's how I see everybody, you know, and, and, and I find that it, it makes my life much easier and much happier too, because every single human being that I connect with or the person that I walk past the street, we always struck up a conversation, <laughs> and, and then my husband, he's terrified going out with me because he's an <laughs> introvert, he's <laughs> like, oh no, not again. <laughs> <laughs> Why you talk to all these strangers? <laughs> to me, they're not strangers, you know. They're just like human beings, just like you and I. And, you know, we just want to have a conversation. <laughs> but Sonia, it's, it's so amazing that you share your intimate 
life story and journey with with us today, our listeners. Before we go, what advice do you have for our listeners and uh, especially those that are currently dealing with a mental illness or may know someone that has this kind of challenge? Oh, Most of our trauma in life is brought up around a charge of not feeling heard. And so when we take the moment for listening, we have an ability to spark a healing. Buddhist monk and activist Thich Nhat Hanh, he's actually from Vietnam, so this is very appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> I listened to his talk too. <laughs> He's, he's brilliant, right? And he says, <laughs> "Yes, he's amazing." He says basically, listening is the basis for any true conversation. Yeah. And in order to speak, so others will listen. You first have to listen to others can speak. And we have, you know, we have this, um, we have this thing about wanting to be heard. And I know. A lot of my TED speakers or aspiring TED speakers ask me, how do I make my ideas worth spreading? And they're always surprised when I tell them this. Like, Your job as a speaker is not to simply speak. Like, your job is to listen. Listen to your audience and listen to others around you. And when you listen, you practice compassion. And compassion is what? It's love. Love in action. And listening is love. And... Uh, You know, thank you so much, Julia, for opening up a space. You created a space today. And well, thank you for being part of this too. It's a complete I mean, I, I knew that you're going to be, you know, so valuable for the show. So I just wanted, I want to oh, say thank you so much pleasure. for that. And I thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy lady. Oh, and so thank really you for making time. So I hope you have a great afternoon. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Okay. <laughs> thank, thank you. you. <laughs> Bye. Well, that's all, folks. Thanks so much for listening today. I'll see you all next show. Bye for now.